Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you as we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount. If you've got a Bible in front of you, it would be great if you might turn to Matthew chapter 5. And this morning I'm to be reading from verses 21 to 32. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 32. But before I read it, why don't I lead us in prayer? And the writer to the Hebrews says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so we pray, Almighty God, that by the power of the Spirit, your word might be at work in us this morning. Please show us what we're really like on the inside. Please drive us to your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And please teach us how to live for him. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen. So if you've got Matthew 5, verse 21 in front of you, then let me read to us. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And uh, you'll be able to tell from our reading that our themes this morning are our base instincts with which every one of us is very familiar. They are passions that stand at the centre of almost every TV soap and Hollywood film. They're used to titillate, to entertain and to sell to us just about everything from ice cream and shampoos uh, to cars. And we know that they have a dark side too, don't we? These are animalistic drives that have wrecked not only friendships and careers, but whole families, 
and Christian ministries. They are anger and lust. In lockdown, we've been told that calls to domestic abuse lines in the UK are up 50%. Dating websites specifically designed to encourage adultery are busier than ever. As a society, we have so much to learn in these areas. Harry Truman once said, I don't believe there's a problem in the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he is right. But you'll know if you've been with us that Jesus' intention in this sermon is not to moralise or to pontificate about the state of society at large. His goal, rather, is to grow a new community that is radically different to the world around us. He's talking first to his disciples and he's not setting them a test. This is crucial. He's not saying, if you behave like this perfectly, then you are allowed to be in my kingdom, one of my disciples. He's already said that if we've repented, if we've begun to follow him, then God's favour and blessing is already ours. God has given us his kingdom. In him, in Jesus, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We shall inherit the earth. All of that is thanks only to God's grace to us in Jesus and especially through his death on the cross. Now, what Jesus is doing here is not setting a test, but describing what life will look like in his new kingdom, in his community, in his church as we respond to his amazing love and mercy, as we await the reward that he has stored up for us in heaven. And first and foremost, the church will be a family of God's children in which Jesus is welcomed as our saviour and as our king and as our teacher. One of the things that people miss in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is the the sheer audacity of the claims that Jesus makes about himself. He does it almost in passing. We get it again today. You'll have spotted the, the pattern in the reading. Three times Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Then in verse 21, he quotes the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. In verse 27, it's the seventh, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 31, slightly different wording, but a reference to Deuteronomy 24. But what's incredible is what Jesus says next. Each time he follows up with, but I say to you. You'll see it in verse 22 and 28 and 32. You've heard what the great Moses said, but now I say to you. And Jesus cites no supporting authority. He offers no justification. It's just a simple, let me tell you how it is. As he claims to be the authoritative herald of God's will for all time and for all people everywhere. It's a claim that is so massive that this man Jesus should either be locked up or worshipped. Because he's saying everything that God has ever said or done in the world has been about me. It's all fulfilled in me. I am God's forever king. 
And I'm here to tell you what life should be like in God's kingdom. And last week we had the principle. You remember Jesus is not abolishing the law but fulfilling it. And in the rest of the chapter are six worked examples. We're going to take three this week and three next. First, there's to be no hatred in our hearts, just mercy. Verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now the Ten Commandments said don't murder because God's heavenly kingdom won't be ravaged by murder. But Jesus goes a step further, protecting not just life, but people, outlawing not just the act of murder, but the anger and the hatred that drive people ultimately to murder. It was standard for rabbis to say, if you murder someone, you'll face the judgment of God. But Jesus is clear that we can incur God's displeasure long before we draw blood. When he says anger, he's not condemning the the righteous anger that he himself exhibited, for example, in the the temple in John chapter 2. There are evils in this world that should make us angry. Our media has been full of the great evil of racism just in these last few weeks. It should make us angry. But God says, in your anger, do not sin. And the trouble is, if if we're honest about it, there's very little of our own anger that isn't driven, at least in part, by our own pride and hurt feelings. Here Jesus is talking specifically about the way that we treat our Christian brothers and sisters. And the sin can come in various forms. Maybe it's the the, the violent eruption of your temper, of which your family live in fear. Or the the venomous insults you you hear yourself saying or you find yourself thinking when your buttons are pushed. And you tell yourself they're justified, but they're not. Or maybe it's an ongoing resentment and hostility that you you feel towards a Christian who's wronged you. The, The kind that looks for the bad in them because it allows you to confirm your prejudices about them. Let's you feel justified in in nursing a grudge. But there's simply no place for any of that in God's kingdom. There won't be any anger or hatred or insults in heaven. And therefore, says Jesus, there won't be any in the church either. Because God is serious about us being a community who are radically different to the world around us. Not just a a social group who are polite and smiley on the surface, but then talk about each other behind our back. But a family that is free from contempt and full of mercy and profoundly for one another. Well, my guess is that you find this as challenging as I do personally. Someone said to me recently, actually, that this, uh, they find this to be the most challenging thing that Jesus ever said 
in the New Testament. And we're all guilty. And lockdown has reminded many of us that these are deep sins. As we prayed at the start, the word of God is meant to expose us like that. It's meant to drive us back to Christ on the cross, poor in spirit, mourning our sin, claiming his forgiveness and asking him for the power of his Holy Spirit to transform us. Uh, To flesh out his point, Jesus gives two very specific applications. They're illustrative rather than exhaustive, but they stress the urgency of turning good intentions into practice. So first he says in verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Someone pointed out that Christians love to substitute ceremony for integrity and duty for love. But Jesus will have none of it. He says it's even more important to sort out our disputes with other Christians than to perform sacred religious duties. We don't even need to be the grumpy party in this, if you see. If we even just remember that a fellow Christian has something against us, we're to drop everything to resolve it. The writer Craig Blomberg asks, how many of our churches would or should be temporarily emptied if we were to take this command seriously? It's not, of course, that our service of God is unimportant, but it is that peace and love are even more important. Or in verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Again, the onus is on us. Be a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Seek reconciliation. I know we can't achieve reconciliation if the other party is unwilling. But we can forgive and remain open-hearted towards them. Well, friends, only you know if there's a conversation that you really need to have with someone even today to settle a wrong. Because in our hearts, there's to be no angry hatred, but just mercy. There's also to be no lust in our looks, just purity. No lust in our looks, just purity. It's our second main heading. And verse 27 is famous, isn't it? You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I suspect that the Holy Spirit has used that Last sentence, almost as much as any other in the New Testament to convict, I guess some young men in particular maybe, of the true depths of our depravity. But notice with me what 
first what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that all sexual desire is wrong and he's not saying that all sexual activity is unholy. Interestingly, that that sets Jesus apart from the, the sexual ethic of some of the other world religions. In classical Buddhism, for example, if you want to be truly holy, you have to renounce all desire. In Hinduism, if you want to reach the higher level of holiness, you have to forsake marriage and be celibate. By contrast, some will be surprised. Jesus is is pro-sex. He is pro-sexual pleasure when it is enjoyed within a marriage context. But God is faithful. And so the Ten Commandments forbade infidelity among his people. And here Jesus takes it back a step and condemns even the lustful desire that precedes the physical act. It's been said there's nothing wrong with noticing that someone is beautiful or handsome. That is just good eyesight. But there's everything wrong with looking at someone in order to desire them sexually. And we all know the difference. Maybe we allow our heads to be filled with lust as we fabricate fantasies involving someone we know or someone we don't. We use pornography for a a selfish sexual thrill. And Jesus says it's, it's all adultery long before the sin moves from our mind to our body and whether or not the fantasy ever becomes a reality. One writer says, popular culture thrives on the theme of seduction and would grind to a thundering halt without it. But the Jesus of this command is not as pleased as culture is by titillation. I couldn't trace the the quote down. I noted it down some time ago. Don't know of the nationality of the, the author but it struck me as a classic piece of British understatement. Jesus is not as pleased as culture is by titillation. How do we respond? Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You'll see the same again in verse 30. He's not suggesting that we maim ourselves literally, but he is re-emphasizing the seriousness of our sin and our need to take drastic steps to avoid it. And we tend to think that it's just a modern problem caused by our internet age. But you know, as long ago as the fourth century, uh, Augustine said that Christians will need heroic courage if we're to be faithful to Christ in this area. And I want to to call us to that kind of heroic courage today. Uh, Martin Luther said, it's impossible to keep the devil from shooting evil thoughts and lusts into your heart. But see to it that you do not let such arrows stick there and take root. Tear them out and throw them away. Another ancient writer, I can't keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair. 
And sexual sin almost never occurs without a build-up. There are fantasies and, and plans and choices and compromises that come long before the act itself, which are like waving the white flag in the battle against sin and are themselves sin. And we need to do whatever it takes to cut those things out of our life at the earliest available opportunity. Because here's the principle. Friends, it is infinitely better to limp into heaven than to leap into hell. It is infinitely better to limp into heaven than to leap into hell. I say that to myself as well as to all of us. It would be a very big surprise, wouldn't it? Scratch that. I want to say it's impossible to believe that there, there aren't at least some of us this morning who need to take violent and decisive action to weed this sin out of our life. Let me say, you don't ever have to struggle alone in this area. Please do talk to, to one of the elders or to a trusted Christian friend. We will walk with you in grace if you struggle in this area. But ultimately, the, the action needs to be yours. I wonder, is there a particular person who leads you astray or vice versa? Can I suggest you, you're never in contact with them privately? WhatsApp messages, flirty texts are not okay. Exchanging pictures is not okay. Coffee with them is not okay. Lunch is not okay. Maybe there are particular TV shows that are a trigger for your lust or magazines. Well, don't watch them. Don't buy them. For some, I'm sure the internet will be your Achilles heel. There are programs out there like Covenant Eyes that you can install. You can set up some clear accountability. Whatever it is and whatever it takes needs to be done. But only you can take the first step of asking for help. In the midst of the, the challenge of these verses, though, I want us to remember, too, that these commands of Jesus all point us forward to the day of his perfect heavenly kingdom. And it's so encouraging to remember that it will be a place of absolute purity where this battle that requires our heroic courage will finally be consigned to the history books. Just as every Christian will be 100% pure on that day, so it's our privilege now as a church to be a, a beacon of purity, to strive to be a ray of light in a misguided world. Wouldn't it be wonderful if one of the things that people said about our churches is that they are very safe places to be? Uh, safe because women aren't objectified or preyed upon. And you don't need to worry about someone's intentions towards your wife or your sister or your daughter. And our young women are safe and cared for and loved as sisters. Because there's no lust in our looks, just purity. 
Finally, this morning, the related and the very painful subject of divorce. My third heading, no charter for easy divorce, just fidelity. It goes without saying, doesn't it, that each of us brings a a certain set of life experiences to the subject of divorce. Many watching, I'm sure, come from broken homes. Uh, Our media tends to downplay the effect of divorce on children, but we all know that for some at least it can lead to to real hurt and to emotional uncertainty for, for many years. Others have themselves been divorced or are going through a divorce at the moment. And while it's good that God speaks into our deepest trials, we we know that listening to his word and wrestling with its implications can be very, very painful indeed. So I'm aware that we're walking on on sensitive ground this morning and it's worse because we haven't got time for a, a thorough treatment of the whole subject. I plan just to confine my comments to these verses. But as ever, if there are any questions or experiences that you want to talk through, I want to encourage you to be in touch with the leaders in this church family. Anybody would, would love to work through those questions with you. Indeed, just to pray with you. But before I read the verses, it might help to know that in Jesus' day, there was, a, there was a big debate about what constituted legitimate grounds for divorce. Back in Deuteronomy 24, God had allowed divorce as a concession in a fallen world. And in particular, if you found, quote, anything indecent in your spouse. And in the first century, there were two main schools of thought as to what that meant. The school of Hillel uh, emphasized the word anything. One rabbi, Akiba, said you could divorce your wife if you didn't find her attractive anymore. Another that burning your dinner was sufficient cause. Quite why the husband couldn't cook his own dinner, I'm not so sure. But in some ways, their mindset was, was very contemporary. Our government talks about no-fault divorce even at the moment. I was in a, a bar in London once. I went to the bathroom and in there was a, a poster advertising a law firm who specialised in what they called quickie lunch hour divorces. And that was this, this first group all over. On the other side was the more conservative school of Shammai who took that phrase, anything indecent, and they emphasized the word indecent by saying that only, the only legitimate ground for divorce was adultery. So that's the background. And you'll see where Jesus comes down as I read from verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The general principle is clear enough, isn't it, that that marriage is not just a a temporary legal contract that can be broken if it's no longer convenient or meeting my needs. You'll remember the bit in the wedding service when husband and wife promised to have and to hold each other from that day forward for better for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Those vows don't just say, well, I'll, I'll stick it for seven years, but if it gets too difficult or if I meet someone else who catches my eye, then I'm out of it. 
but they're saying, I, I know it will be hard. And there may well be days when I don't want to stick around, but forsaking all others, I will be faithful to you until death us do part. And in God's kingdom, those aren't just to be words that we say, but promises that we keep, because marriage is for life. Here in Matthew, Jesus allows just one exception. Our translation calls it sexual immorality in verse 32. It's a hotly debated verse. I'm persuaded that Jesus is saying that the the act of adultery is so serious and so destructive to the bond of marriage that in that circumstance, the offended party may, may divorce their partner without fear that they would be sinning if they did so. Uh, Some will know that in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul makes an additional exception for when someone deserts the marriage and refuses all attempts at reconciliation. And most of us would think that abuse, sadly a a reality in our generation, uh, counts as constructive desertion. And again, therefore, divorce would be permitted. But those are the, the exceptions, not the norm. And even in the case of adultery, divorce is not commanded but permitted. You won't need me to tell you that the the choice of whether to reconcile or to divorce after adultery is extremely difficult. It's especially complex when children are involved. And both options, in my experience, involve real pain. It's a choice that can only be made ultimately by that one individual because it is he or she who will have to live most nearly with the consequences. Friends and family and elders can advise, but I don't think we should ever direct. Uh, Certainly, again, in my experience, the best thing that we can do, the very best thing for someone in that position is not to tell them what to do, but just to love them faithfully, to support them and pray for them, and to point them over and over again to Christ. There is um, so much more to say about the subject of divorce. I haven't dealt with every detail in these verses. We haven't even touched on the question of remarriage. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave that for another day. For now, might we just back up and remember the, the bigger picture? That in these verses, Jesus is giving his disciples a, a picture of what life will be like in his perfect kingdom, of how he wants us to live here on earth while we wait for it. And I hope we can agree that the portrait that he paints is incredibly beautiful. One of the great sins of our age is to dehumanize other people. In our anger, we serve and defend our own interests and we don't care who suffers in the process. In our lust, we objectify others and use them for our own gratification. Isn't it wonderful the way that Jesus places a a protective shield of honour around every person that we would ever meet and he asks us to treat them with honour and with dignity. But as we close, I know that every single one of us listening this morning will be painfully aware of 
big mistakes that we've made in one or more of these areas. Christ himself lived perfectly in this area, in all of these areas, but only he. Not one of us is truly righteous. No, not even one. So I want to end by reading some words written by the Apostle John. And I want to encourage each one of us to claim the free forgiveness that God gives in Christ to all who come to him. So here's what we'll do. I'll read John's words. Um, I'll I'll leave a few moments for, for quiet personal reflection. Maybe there's something you need to say to God even this morning. And then I'll read the words again and lead us in prayer. This is what John wrote. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A moment for some quiet reflection. Those words again. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Almighty God, we want to praise you for your faithfulness to us. We want to praise you for your willingness to forgive us. We want to praise you that through his death on the cross, the Lord Jesus has already paid the price that our sins deserve so that we can be forgiven, that we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness, that we can enjoy true relationship with you, and that if we're trusting in him, we can be confident that you will one day welcome us into heaven. Thank you that you are a God who chooses not to hold our sins against us, but to forgive us and love us for the sake of your son. And so we praise you afresh for the gift of forgiveness this morning. Thank you that in your eyes, if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus, we have already been washed clean, that our consciences are cleansed, that we enjoy true relationship with you. Praise you that you take away our guilt, therefore, and that we need never fear condemnation from you. And as, Father, those who are poor in spirit and mourn for our sin, we pray too that you would help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you would help us to take whatever decisive action is needed to put these sins of anger and lust to death and to live in a way that is at peace and loving and faithful and true. We pray for this church and all our churches 
that they might be communities that live out the values of your kingdom, that are attractive places to be, not standing in judgment over the world around us, but rejoicing in Christ and in heaven and seeking to live now as we will then. Help us please, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.